This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Well, we learned just recently that China tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile, reportedly stunning members of U.S. intelligence. And Fox News reported the test showed just how far China has progressed on hypersonic weaponry, farther than our officials realized. But in the midst of this threat, what did the State Department decide to tweet after it was revealed? Well, it's promotion of International Pronouns Day, prompting lawmakers like Senator Marsha Blackburn to tweet out, what are you doing about China's expanded nuclear capabilities. It's crazy. And this is a particularly terrifying time for our U.S. military to focus on wokeness rather than on national security. And as my next guest notes, much of the problem here does come down to politics. And joining me today is retired Army Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg. He served as chief of staff to the National Security Council, acting national security advisor to President Trump and national security advisor to Vice President Pence. He also was involved in every major national security decision by the president between 2017 in 2021. He serves now as co-chairman of the Center for American Security and is out with a great book revealing some fascinating details about his time in the administration. It is called War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. General Kellogg, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Janet, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you. And I know you have served your country honorably in Vietnam way beyond. You understand national security as well as anybody. I'm wondering what your take is on the state of our military leadership right now. It must grieve you to some extent to see some of this nonsense going on. It's such a key time in our history. Yeah, you know, Janet, it's, it's more than it, it's frustrating. And the reason it's frustrating is I think, uh, and I've said this quite openly, it means I probably won't get any invitations to New Year's receptions at Fort Myer. <laughs> uh, but but, the, but what has happened is I think we've just forgotten what the primary role at the senior levels, not the great young men and women we have under arms, uh, levels below, let's say, even two-star level. But they forgot what their mission is, and that's to deter, and if deterrence fails, to fight and win our nation's wars. And that's what they should be focused on exclusively. That's you know, basically why they draw their paycheck. And I think they've gotten become very, become over the last decade, decade and a half, very much politicized and got themselves involved in areas they, they should not get involved in and they should stay out of it. Uh, you know, I, this is, I'm seeing a military that I didn't see, you know, under Colin Powell or under Hugh Shelton or uh, General Myers or any of them, any of the other great chairmen like that or the other commanders. And I think they're making a mistake. And uh, I think that people are going to start responding negatively to the senior leadership because they're going to say every decision that makes a political decision and it's not based on life of death of our nation or in the, in the welfare of our great young men and women. So I think we've gone down a pretty bad path and um, it's something we need to take a 
hard look at it and how we correct it going into the future. Well, I agree with you. From a lot of Americans' perspective, we don't understand that. We, we always have revered our military, most of us, and understood that mission that you've mentioned and are looking at people like General Milley, who's talking about white rage and teaching critical race theory, defending that teaching at West Point, things like that, saying, why are these people so political? How did they get off course here and begin to focus on white rage and yeah. pronouns instead of the threats that are surrounding us, not just with China, but Iran, North Korea. There's so many others we could mention. What happened exactly, in your view? Yeah, it, you know, Jan, that's a great question. And I really looked at it pretty hard. And I think what has happened is this is one of the problems you have when you have an extended or long war, 20-year war like we had in Afghanistan. And everybody was focused on terrorism, counterterrorism, which is important. Uh, but it's a it's a tertiary issue. It's not a primary, even a secondary. You know, when you've got two existential threat nations out there with China and and Russia, we can handle terrorism kind of on its own. And we got so focused and on terrorism and how to handle it, we forgot what the primary role of our military was. And because of the role of, of countering terrorism, it's a very political action in itself. And that's what terrorism is. It's a political act using violence. And they, they forgot what their primary role is. Instead of stepping back and saying, nope, our job is to deter and fight winner nation's wars, period. That's what we're going to do. You know, when I look at, like, you in Afghanistan, you know, Colin Powell years ago, when I was in the military, we had a pretty good governing philosophy in the military. It was one to stay out of politics. But the second was we would fight with overwhelming force. We would fight to win. We would make sure the American people were with us. And we would have a defined end state. And this all of it came out of Vietnam, and we saw some of the actions taken by senior leaders in Vietnam. And because of the of the involvement of, of the Middle East and terrorism and, and the involvement of the politics and the policies, I think they just kind of warped their way into it. And the reason that happened is that we had a generation or a generation plus of officers who went that went, went through that whole role uh, fighting in the Middle East, and they, they were not... They didn't grow up in a military life I grew up in, which was the Vietnam War, the Cold War, where we had somebody staring us across uh, the full the gap with the Soviets, that, what they're there, the, growth, the emergence of China, and we always had North Korea there. So I, I, they just kind of evolved into it, and they, they're going to have to do a hard stop. I, I mean, I think there's a way to do it. And I think it's pretty harsh, but what I would probably do is what George C. Marshall did in 1940, which is you call the herd. And what I mean by that is he eliminated 350 senior officers in the military because they were not ready to fight World War II. They were not physically fit or intellectually fit to fight it. And that's why Dwight E. Eisenhower, he jumped 350 officers in one night. And I think maybe we should really think hard at that. I'm sure people will scream and yell about that, but maybe it's time we go back and, and force feed and realign our military, especially at the senior leaders, not the great men and women at the junior ranks, but at the senior ranks. Right. Well, it's interesting, though, because when you talk about calling the herd, it seems to a lot of Americans that the herd they're trying to call from within the military is people who don't get the vaccine. And that seems to be a pretty ridiculous reason to call the herd at a time when we need a good fighting force. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not a big believer, in, frankly, in, in the mandatory vaccines. I, because when you look at the people, will say, "Well, the, the military always gives vaccines." Yeah, but the vaccines they were they were given us were, when I came in. They don't anymore because it's been basically eradicated. But like with smallpox, or when you got the flu, or some of the others out there. When the, you look about the, mor- the morbidity of COVID, and I was on the coronavirus task force 
and I saw the the uh, morbidity and mortality levels we were having, and this is a to me a, a huge overreaction. And I reminded everybody early on. I said, you know, there was something called the Nuremberg War Trials, <laughs> and what came out of the Nuremberg War Trials, which was called the Nuremberg Coda, it was an ethical coda that all nations were supposed to follow. And what it what it simply said put in layman's terms is that uh, you would not force people to vaccines or some type of injections or do something to their body that they did not want to do. And, and this is not a national security issue to me. And they made it a national security issue, but they, they used politics to do it. Yeah. So I push back pretty hard on a, on a personal level. Look, I've taken the vaccine. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm just saying you need to really think hard about what you've done because you've created not a medical issue within the military. You've created a political issue within the military. And it's a self-inflicted wound, and I think it's a huge mistake. Yeah, you're right about that. I think that's a good observation. So how would you say that the wokeness, the current level of wokeness in the military leadership is actually affecting America's readiness concerning China and some of the other foreign powers that threaten us? Well, I think what happens when when you make declarations that they do at the senior level, you have to understand what that happens as it goes down the chain, down to the young private down there, the specialists down there, the sergeants down there. And are they going to be asking questions of why are we doing this? And they will. I mean, soldiers do that. Soldiers, you know, one of the surest right of a soldier, it seems to me, is they always get to complain, which is okay. <laughs> but, they, but they actually say, you know, why am I doing this? And then they see the political environment, and then they're in the back of their mind, they're going, this has nothing to do with readiness. This has everything to do with politica- politicalization of the military, and I don't like it. And you see a lot of the pushback on people not taking, not wanting to take it. And it's because it was, they, they just, for lack of a better term, they really didn't sell it at all. Uh, to the young men and women in uniform, and there's a lot that just don't do it. They're going to probably, a lot of them will probably comply simply because they're going to follow orders, but that doesn't mean they're doing it willingly. And that's not how you have a good military force. The most effective military force, which happens to be an American military, is one that is fully willing to fight for their nation because they believe that the leadership is solid behind them. And this raises questions in the leadership. And I think it's a huge mistake. Um, and I, there's a way, they're going to have some problems getting out of this because there's a, a lack of confidence now in senior leaders. And especially when you've got them going in front of Congress and talking about critical race theory or you have them talking about books that no one even understands instead of just talking about war fighting. I recommended to a couple of the senior officers before they went up the hills to, to uh, Capitol Hill, and ones that I know, I said, look, stay in your lane. Yeah. Stay in your war fighting lane. If you right. ask you a political question, get away from it. For sure. Hang on just a moment. We'll go to a break. General Keith Kellogg with us. War by Other Means, his book. We'll be right back. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody says. This is the end of the story of a young mom who planned to end her pregnancy but chose life after visiting a preborn center. Preborn steps into the lives of hurting young women who are being told that a preborn baby is not a life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct answer to Planned Parenthood, helping young moms choose life. I feel like it was meant for me to have this baby. This is something I give me for a reason. You can be a part of choosing life with young hurting women across the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of 2019. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now, through a match, your gift of $140 will actually help save 10 babies instead of five. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 
855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. What was it like to serve in the Trump administration when that president was under such assault and there were so many important issues that took place during the course of the Trump White House? We're talking with General Keith Kellogg, former National Security Advisor to President Trump and Vice President Pence. His book is called War by Other Means, a General in the Trump White House. General Kellogg, you had mentioned when we had started talking about the woke military and the effectiveness, uh, the effect, I should say, of the woke military on the rest of our armed forces. Um, You had brought up the issue of Afghanistan. Of course, this has been quite a bit in the news in the last couple of months. The Biden administration botched, and I think that's a very nice way of putting, how they got us out of Afghanistan after 20 years. And of course, President Trump wanted to get our troops out of Afghanistan. You dealt with that issue. How should that have been done? And what is your reaction to how the Biden administration completely did a terrible job of getting us out of that country? Yeah, Janet, the correct word is debacle. Thank you. That's I mean, good. It was a, you know, or, or disaster. They both start with these, uh, and they get an F grade for it. Um, you know, we put we wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, the president, President Trump, wanted to get out. I wanted to get out. I was with him in 2015, 16 as well, before going to the White House. And we came up with a plan to do it. it was was it a perfect plan? No, because no plans are really perfect. But we worked over two years to put it together. And part of it is we put together a plan of getting uh, a pretty senior Taliban official out of the Pakistani jail. And President Trump did that by calling Prime Minister Khan of Pakistan and Mullah Berarder, who was the chief negotiator for the Taliban, who had been uh, one of the original founders of the Taliban, put him at Doha, and we said, okay, look, we're going to work out a negotiated, conditionally-based agreement to get out of Afghanistan, but we're going to back it by force, make sure we're going to have a government of national reconciliation. That means the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Pashtun, whoever is out there is going to be part of it. And we came, it took us a while, but we finally got an agreement signed on the 29th of February, 2020. And it was conditions-based. You do this, we'll do this. Mm-hmm. And it, it, leading us to eventually to get out of Afghanistan and have this government of national reconciliation. In fact, that was the first condition, was for the Taliban and the Ghani government to get together to discuss peace terms, to have a peace, have a, this type of government. But it, we, the Probably to me, Janet, the most important thing what what happened as a result after that agreement, under result agreement on the 20th of February, is on the 3rd of March. President Trump picks up the phone and calls the chief Taliban negotiator, Barada, and tells him in no uncertain terms what would happen if he did not follow through with with the agreement in in a peaceful transition. And I was sitting there in the Oval listening to the president thinking, good Lord, how is this being translated? Because he was telling him in pretty blunt terms 
what would happen to the Taliban and the rest of them if, this, if they didn't follow through with it. And here's an interesting point of data, that from that agreement and that telephone call until 20 January 2021, um, there was not a single American soldier killed in Afghanistan, not one. And he basically said, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're eventually, eventually going to leave 2,500 troops, U.S. troops, 5,000 Allied troops, over 3,000 paramilitary supported by our CIA. We're going to leave the Bagram Air Base open. We're going to leave our air support there until this coalition government, the government of national reconciliation, came together and was functioning, and then we would eventually get out of there, um, uh, making sure that we had an ability to come back in if necessary to do it. So these conditions were all set, and Barada understood it. Uh, what happened was when we went left office on the 20th of January, well, they just threw that agreement away, and they went for a, a date-based agreement, 31 August, with no conditions at all. Mm. In fact, I was just set, told to uh, Margaret Brennan, I think it's on CBS Face the Nation, just a couple of weeks ago when Zal Kulzad, the chief negotiator for us and for Biden, said we went from a conditions-based agreement until a, to a date-based agreement, which was the recipe for disaster. And, and Biden never picked up the phone to call the Taliban. They just felt ignored. So after they felt ignored, uh, they said, okay, let's game on. Let's go just do what we want to do. And we had put a, a break on that. It was forced respect. So we had a plan. It, it was a plan for us to get out of there, to disengage, to leave it peacefully. It would not have been like we're seeing today. Here's the end state, though, Janet. This which should concern everybody. You've now got a terrorist megastate in the Middle East. When you look at three nations, all with contiguous borders, you've got Iran, which always chanced that to America, has the largest missile fleet in the entire Middle East. Then you've got Afghanistan, an ungoverned territory, led by a pretty ruthless group, not just the Taliban, but the Haqqani Network. And just to the east of them, you've got Pakistan with nuclear weapons, which is run by their military and intelligence services. When you put that all together, you've got a witch's brew in the Middle East right now. Yeah, you do. And leaving Americans behind, that was beyond the pale. And that just disappeared from the headlines, didn't it? After a few days, it was not, nobody's yeah. talking about it now. Yeah, it's 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 and we did. I, we wouldn't leave anybody behind. Look, this is a Trump administration. I'll remind people, and they probably have to go back and look at it, and and look in the newspaper or Google it. You know, and right before we left office, we went into Niger because there was a single individual that had been kidnapped by seven thugs, not even terrorists, just thugs. We sent SEAL Team Six in. It's all public record to go recover this guy. One man, and we sent SEAL Team 6 to get him overseas, got him, brought him home, killed all seven of them. And, it, you know, I, say, and I tell people, look, just look it up. You can find it. It's all public record. We don't leave Americans behind. We didn't. And yet they left not one, not two, not 20 or 30. Left, they left hundreds behind. Hundreds. And that I'm just shocked that the American people have not picked up on that or thought about it because it's just something we wouldn't have done. And I just don't think, uh, you know... An American should leave another American behind, especially in dire circumstances. No, and that's I heard that again and again from people that the President Trump never would have done that. Never, not only the conditions-based agreement that you referenced instead of the date-based agreement, the whole way it was done was a catastrophe. But also the whole idea of leaving Americans behind. This was what so many people loved about President Trump: the America First policy that you describe in the book, how that was outlined, how that was formulated, and how it was implemented. 
people miss that. I think we've seen that this week in some of the election results. People want their country back, and I think that sentiment still remains. Are you feeling that same way when you talk to yeah. people? Yeah, you know, it's funny because it's funny, I was actually, uh, in truth of advertising, my, do- my daughter was on the Yunkin campaign team, um, and, of course, they just had that uh, wonderful victory in Virginia, and we were through it last night, went up there last night. And you, which, when I got the, just this, the absolute sense of what was going on, is people finally have just been fed up with everything they've seen going on, and they, they've just said, we're going to kind of take our country back, and, and we're pushing back, and this is the way we think it should be should be going forward in, into the future. And I think America just tired of what they'd seen in the last year, and this was their way of saying, enough is enough. I'm not going to take it anymore. You know, what was that? that was years and years ago, there was a there was a movie called, uh, I think it was called The Network, where the, the, the primary actor said, I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's happened out there. People have just fed up with it, and uh, they just pushed back pretty hard. And last night, I think you saw that, not just in Virginia, but you saw it in New Jersey, and you saw it other other places as well. Um, yeah. And I think it's good. I think America needs to do that, which what we tried to do when we said about America first. Um, I think there's been an overreach now of people that have been outside what we consider to be America and Americans, and uh, they're not—they're trying to drive a, um, a sense of where the nation should be, and most Americans don't want that. No, that's right. And and there's so many things that I would love to be able to get to. I know we only have a few minutes left here of your time, but when you talk about America's greatest battles being yet to come, that's a scary thing for somebody in your position to assert to the rest of the nation because we trust you. But militarily and or culturally, what do you see those battles to be? What are those b- battles ahead that you think will be so difficult? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a battle for the soul of the nation. It's, you know, how we grew up as a nation. You know, we're a nation, and I say this in the book as well. Look, our nation's not perfect. No nations have perfect histories. There's warts in our history, okay? But acknowledge them, and, and but don't obliterate them and, and throw them in the, on the trash bin of history. It's wrong. It's wrong. Uh, you, you, the best thing I can say, Janet, look, this whole thing like renaming military bases, okay? I'm a Californian. I'm not from the South. But there's a reason why those bases were named, and there's a histor- historic reason why we shouldn't just obliterate the past. We should learn from the past. I told President Trump that when this was starting to, to uh, bubble up. And I remember Mark Milley sitting in the Oval Office talking about Lee and he was General Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, and he was talking about Lee as a traitor. I said, hey, Mark, stop. I said, that decision was made in, in 1865 in the building right next to us, the, uh, the, the residence of the president. When Andrew Johnson and Ulysses S. Grant got together, and Grant told him, if you try to you know, bring up Lee on charges, court-martial him, uh, I'll resign. And he understood that you had to bring the nation back together. And we have to remind everybody, look, this is a battle for the soul of the nation. We are a very good nation. We have done incredible things. People fight to get into this country, not to leave it. Right. And, and we should remember how we got to where we're at in the history that got us to where we're at. And this is the battle I see fighting where people want to eradicate our history or change our history, modify it, or, or tell us our history is no good. And I'm saying, nope, uh, you're wrong. It, it's a very good nation. We, we've been, I think history will record this nation as doing, some, you know, some great stuff yeah. in the life of the world. Yeah, I do too. General Kellogg, do you see the future of America being more in the direction of freedom or more in the direction of tyranny? And in that, I'm thinking about everything that's gone on culturally, including a lot of the oppression that came politically during the pandemic. In your own state of California, uh, we saw a lot of that from Governor Newsom. But are we freedom? Are we headed toward more freedom or less freedom, in your opinion? 
last night gave me immense hope that people have said enough. We're not going down that other path, and we're going to go, you know, a path that this is what our nation was founded on. You know, this is this what Ronald Reagan said. We're the you know the bright shiny 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 city on a hill. Yes, and I think that's what we are, and I think we should acknowledge that and take pride in that. Again, it, you know, Janet, it's not that we're perfect, we're not, but we're pretty darn good, and I think you know, the entire world looks at us that way, and I think I had a lot of hope last night watching the election returns come in, you know, even from New Jersey, and I've said, okay, people are just saying enough. We don't want to keep going the way this nation's going, where it's trying to be driven, not by the people in Washington, Kansas, but the people in Washington, D.C. Yes. So I, I think we're I think we're going to be okay, but, but I will tell you, candidly, Janet, I think we have to fight for this on a daily basis. And if you don't fight for it on a daily basis, then you're going to lose. And we need to push back on those who say that there's something wrong with this nation. Well said. Well said. General Keith Kellogg, War by Other Means is the name of his book. And thank you so much, General. It was wonderful to have you. And you're a great American. Thank you so much for your service and for being with us. Thanks, Janet. Thank you so much. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. As you know, I am a huge fan of the great ministry Heart for Lebanon, and I have been telling you about their work for Jesus Christ in that country for several years now. They are out there on the ground. They're providing emergency supplies and Christian education and, best of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are really in desperate need of help and eternal hope right now. And because of this ministry's work, more and more people of Muslim background are coming to know the Lord every day. That's probably the most exciting part of what Heart for Lebanon is involved in. But the number of people in need right now is huge. And a lot of these families in the refugee camps of Lebanon are now on a waiting list in order to get help. And over the next few weeks, we are asking you to help us reach out with the love of Jesus to 52 of these families. We're almost to that goal, but we really need your continued support right now. A gift of $116 will provide one child and his family with survival essentials for four months. And also they will receive the hope of the gospel, which lasts, as we know, forever. You can also help out with a gift of $29 a month. But if you can give a gift, call now. Here's the number. It's 888-247-5499. Let me tell you that number again. 888-247-5499. Or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. What is at the heart of Heart for Lebanon's ministry? We're going to get some details now from Heart for Lebanon's Jack Hibbard. Jack, always great to have you here. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing great, Janet, and we're huge fans of yours and your listeners and so grateful for the opportunity to once again partner together to really help change uh, the Middle East, which I think is our potential together today for sure. Well, there's so much to talk about, and I think one of the most important things to cover is the great need in Lebanon right now. I've been talking, as you know, for several years about the need in Lebanon. It's never been greater. I mean, there are so many simultaneous crises going on in Lebanon. Can you give people a little bit of a picture of the situation? Situation there in Lebanon. Yeah, multiple crises, as you put it, Janet. No, no question about it. Uh, I think the biggest thing that's happening countrywide right now, besides for the refugee crisis, and of course that's the that's the thing really that Heart for Lebanon has been centered on for so many years. But there's so many other things happening right now that it's just uh, it's just amazing. They have a crumbling economy. The New York Times uh, said it's the worst economic meltdown in a century. Uh, 75% of everybody living in country needs some kind of financial assistance right now. Their currency, get this, has lost 90% of its value over the last 18 months. If you can imagine the impact of something like that, it's been terrible. Of course, you had the port of a of Beirut explosion last year. Um, a lot of folks remember that almost uh, just a little over a year ago, uh, the largest industrial explosion since World War II. Uh, 7,500 people were injured in that. Over 300 people died, another 300,000 homeless. And, you know, right on the heels of that, the government basically walked out. Uh, So they've had this tremendous void of leadership there. Uh, The government is in disarray. There is an election scheduled for uh, next spring. But frankly, nobody in country thinks that's going to solve anything. And of course, just like the rest of the world, uh, Lebanon's been dealing with, uh, with the COVID crisis there. I don't think we'll ever know uh, just because of the way the culture is there, the the real impact of that. But they've had higher infection rates, uh, certainly, than our country. And uh, because the economy is in such terrible shape, they're also not getting, um, you know, proper medical care or vaccines or anything that would help combat that. So you put all that together and then you, and then you have the refugee crisis. Um, more refugees per capita than any other place in the world. And you can look at all that and say, well, that that's a mess. And it is. (laughs) But, you know, I think the bigger the mess, the greater the opportunity. And uh, you mentioned it already, Janet. God is using Heart for Lebanon in just incredible ways, I think, to take advantage of what, you know, we really are calling the opportunity of a lifetime. You mentioned this, but um, I I think proof of the pudding was something that I read from the the news agency Al Jazeera, which I know a lot of us don't um, spend time listening to or reading. But even they reported uh, in the last few months that more Muslim culture people, more people coming from the Muslim culture, are turning to Christianity and placing their hope and faith in Jesus than at any other time in our generation, uh, thousands every week. And we're certainly seeing it as part of our ministry and what God is doing. You know, there's a verse in Isaiah that says, in a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and that fertile field seemed like a forest? <laughs> and I honestly believe that prophecy is happening right now before mm. our very eyes. And our vision at Heart for Lebanon isn't just to you know, build a bigger organization. It is to create a movement of Muslim-cultured background believers that are going to reach every child in their family with the gospel and equip them to be disciple-makers to their own people. And we're starting to see that happen. I think today is a wonderful opportunity 
for your listeners to engage in where God is working there for sure. Oh, amen. It's, it is an exciting time. And that's what I've been trying to convey to our listeners, how important this missions opportunity is. I really think of it that way, Jack, because as you and I have discussed before, when listeners give a gift to Heart for Lebanon to provide survival essentials for these families, which is critical for, for four months, it's $116. It's incredible how you know that gift can go so far. But in that, that's just a way of being able to make that connection with these people from Muslim background in order to share the gospel for them. And the fruit is just incredible. You know, all of these people who are coming to know the Lord and are getting, the children are getting Christian education. They're joining Bible studies now. They're getting involved in local churches there near the camps. I mean, this is just, it's hard to convey how much a gift to Heart for Lebanon really goes, Jack. And I'm wondering if you can explain to people, if you give a gift of $116 by calling 888-247-5499, what are you really doing for these people on the other side of the world? Well, you're really kickstarting a relationship. I, I, you know, I love what you said about uh, our need to meet those immediate physical needs. But the last thing in the world I'd want people to misunderstand or, or to think would, would be that Heart for Lebanon is just a relief organization. Right. Uh, we never, we weren't founded upon that, that principle. We, we, it's not our mission. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And the way you do that in the Muslim culture is to build a relationship. So we use the, that opportunity of immediate physical relief. Yes, we provide those survival essentials for four months. And by the way, we use that term on purpose, Janet, survival essentials, because it's not just a, a cup of cold water, some food. Um, it's really, when you're in a relationship, right, you do whatever it takes. So yes. we've rebuilt Ten settlements. We've we've gone in and provided medical care for people who need it. It's it's anything that they need to survive. But that starts a relationship. And honestly, we talk about four months of supplies. But we commit when we, we begin to serve a family, we commit to a relationship that lasts at least a minimum of twelve months. Uh, some of our relationships have been twelve years uh, uh, since the Syrian war broke out. We go in month after month, uh, visit these hurting people, listen to their heartbreaking stories, and invariably the question comes out, why do you care about us? <laughs> nobody else cares about us. There's nobody here in Lebanon that, that wants anything to do with us, but yet you continue to show up. And, of course, we get the opportunity then to tell them that we love them because Jesus first loved us. And yes. we get the opportunity to share the gospel, but it's that relationship that earns us the right to do that and we're just seeing lives being changed um, literally by the hundreds almost every week. Well, and very quickly, Jack, I mentioned this waiting list. We are trying to help 52 families. I know we're almost to that goal. If we can get some more support, that would be fantastic. But how many families are on that waiting list right now, just out of curiosity? Literally hundreds, Janet. Um, the need is, is, is limitless, to be honest with you. But we have we have already vetted uh, 4,200 families that that are that are waiting for our support. Now, you know, again, I say we vetted those; they're all ready to go. We haven't reached them yet. We we still have another fa- thousand families that are sitting on a waiting list. So we talk about reaching 52. That's a tremendous uh, tremendous accomplishment, and I really believe that God's going to enable us to do that. Maybe even as you and I are talking right now, yes. we're very close to being able to do that. Just a couple of more uh, gifts at that $116 level, and we we'd meet that 52 family goal. But there are literally hundreds that are waiting behind them. And that's my heart, and I know it is yours, too, that none of these families get left behind. Yep. We, we, we 
don't have a problem of a need. We have a problem of a resource, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet we know the one that holds all those resources. So we're just praying that the Lord will provide people that'll see the need and respond with great generosity and we can meet these people right where they are. I love it. If you'd like to help with a gift of $116, please call now. We need your support for Heart for Lebanon. 888-247-5499. 888-247-5499. Or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. We thank you for your support and thank you to Jack Hibbard from Heart for Lebanon. Appreciate you, Jack. Thanks a lot for being with us. God bless you, Janet. Thank you. God bless. We'll be back. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. The UN has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of 100 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, there's a little bit of pep in my step after what happened this week. I, not the least of which involves the fact that a Republican governor was elected in Virginia. You mean they can't rig it that much to make sure that the Democrats always win in every single race? I know that seems like an insane thing to say, but in some respects, when you reflect back on the 2020 election, maybe it isn't so insane. I think there are many people out there who are feeling that fear a little bit, if you want to call it fear, that our elections would ever be fair again or would ever go to the other candidates. It's, it's just kind of a little spring in our step here where we're seeing a little bit of hope. And that's nice to see. There were a number of parents in Loudoun County, Virginia, where all of that school board madness was going on. And the poor father whose daughter was sexually assaulted over this whole transgender issue. And that was covered up by the school district. And they're all woke and they're all into extreme LGBT ideology. I, I, I don't even know what it would be like to be a parent 
parent in that county, but they're all rejoicing because they said that, according to these uh, mama bears interviewed by the Daily Caller, they said that divisive propagandized identity politics led to Terry McAuliffe's statewide defeat as their public fight with Loudoun County made education a top priority among Virginian voters. And of course, it's been said for quite a while that what's gone on post-pandemic and during the pandemic was parents woke up. Parents got woke, not in the capital W sense of the term, but they got woke to what their kids were being taught and paid more attention than maybe normally they would have to the details of what was going on in their local school districts. And there was a really good payoff. It was very interesting to see how many school districts across the country got a bump in terms of good people getting on school boards. How long has it been since we really have talked about the importance of school boards? But it is an important issue because... As they say, all politics is local. That's where it all begins. And when you consider the left's war against parents weaponizing the FBI, as Merrick Garland has tried to do, against parents and trying to paint them as a bunch of domestic terrorists, no wonder parents are rising up. Here are just a couple of instances. Parker, Colorado, for example, had a slate of four conservative political novices. This was a slate called Kids First, winning seats on the school board and they beat out the teacher federation backed incumbents there and that was a great win and they said this is a win for free speech it's a win for the first amendment what was going on in that school district with critical race theory and equitable learning policies you have these leftist activists that are really using the school system to propagandize and indoctrinate kids and the parents praise the Lord, have had enough of it and are fighting back. That was really good. You also saw some wins in Iowa. You saw some wins in Pennsylvania. Here where I am in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in South Lake, Texas, there has been a big push to make sure that the schools get back in line there. And NBC reports in this Part of DFW, this is a very affluent suburb of Dallas, where parents have been feuding for more than a year over a school district's proposal to address racism. Oh, is that what we're calling it now? Candidates supported by a conservative political action committee won majority control of the school board, clearing the way for the board to officially kill the polarizing diversity plan. Praise the Lord. See, this is good. This is good when parents get involved. It's interesting, though, to see... What a colossal disaster this is for the Democrats. And all you have to do is spend about five minutes watching MSNBC or one of the other liberal cable channels or your favorite liberal pundit and just watch them crying and raging. And it's the usual nonsense. Not that I recommend doing that. You might as well have a little fun. But Terry McAuliffe, this guy, here's the guy, the former governor who loses to this newcomer, Glenn Youngkin, who, who, you know, give him credit. This was a great win. You had the Lincoln Project, you know, mounting that tiki torch hoax of white supremacists who were showing up at the Yunkin rally. And the whole thing was, you know, astroturf, as they like to say. Terry McAuliffe did this all on his own. He is awful. He's been awful for years. He was awful when he was the head of the DNC. He's been awful, awful, awful. But they love awful over on the side of the left. Terry McAuliffe, though, on the issue of parents... He not only went after parents, he kept doubling down on going after parents. Let's go back to some of that audio, because I think we need to remember what it was Terry McAuliffe did to help himself implode. Here he was. He was asked a simple question. You remember this? If he were to win the governorship of of Virginia, how would he work with parents who have concerns about how things are being taught in schools? This is what he said. Cut one. 
if you win, how are you going to work with those parents who have concerns about how things are being taught in schools yeah. across well, the Commonwealth? Let's be very clear here. This is all generated by Glenn Youngkin. This is what MS-13, the Republicans used on Governor Northam four years ago when he was running. They try to find a divisive tactic. Oh, it's a divisive tactic. That's what you're going to talk about when you are asked about working with parents who are concerned about what's going on in the public schools. And then there was this wonderful moment also from Terry McAuliffe. This is cut to. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decision. You vetoed it. So, yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Yeah. Why would you involve parents? Those people are domestic terrorists. Why in the world would you give them any say? Just because they gave birth to the little urchins doesn't mean that we don't know what's best. Right. You guys on the left who have ushered in Planned Parenthood and gay activist groups and the 1619 Project and are shoving all kinds of activist narratives down the throats of innocent children who don't have the maturity or the knowledge to be able to adequately take it in and refute it as older children might do or young adults might be able to do if they were smart enough and educated enough on these issues. They love it. You've got to get them while they're young. Because if you don't get them while they're young, you can't put them in a cradle to grave scenario of leftism because they will spit it out like some kind of spoiled piece of fruit that you have shoved into their mouths. Blah. You're not going to shove it out of your mouth unless you know that it's rotten and you're not going to know it's rotten unless somebody properly instructs you that it's rotten and you should reject it. It's not like food. Ideas are not like food. You have to actually understand what is being taught to you. Now, here's what Van Jones had to say over on CNN post-election about Terry McAuliffe. Listen to cut three. He was trying to run against Donald Trump and this guy was able to, to run a, 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 as a champion for parents. You got a lot of parents who just spent a year homeschooling their kids and were forced to do so, to tell those people, look, we don't care what you think about education. That is a big insult. And I think you're gonna see that a bunch of moms said, we don't like that attitude, and they rose up. Yeah, they did rise up. Now, do you think that the left has learned a lesson here? about understanding the core issue, which is parents just want their kids to be educated. They don't want them to be propagandized with fake history like the 1619 Project. They don't want their kids insulted for being white. They don't want their kids called white supremacists. They don't want mask mandates. They don't want all of this totalitarianism forced on their little children. Do you think that the left has learned their lesson in the aftermath of the Red triumph in Virginia and beyond. Well, let's turn to what happened yesterday. Chuck Todd on NBC interviewed former Obama advisor Stephanie Cutter. You're going to love this. Talking about what the Democrats should be considering for 2022. What does she make of all of this? Listen to this response. Cut four. And the one thing that we need to make sure that uh, Republicans in 2022 don't become is the party of parents mm-hmm. uh, because we need to be the party of parents <laughs> and, and we are we're the ones that care about school funding we're the ones that care about making sure that parents can send their kids to school uh, because they have jobs to go to you know all of this we need to own that agenda we cannot let it go and it's not just about critical race theory it's a it's coming out of covid it's parental frustration it's parents being involved in their kids schooling we need to pay attention to all of it 
Isn't that unbelievable? We can't let the Republicans be the party of parents. We're going to be the party of parents. Okay, let me give you a little bit of a piece of advice here, Democrats. You're not the party of parents. You're the party of big government. You're the party of we don't care what parents think. Parents shouldn't have any say in what their kids are taught. We'll take care of it. And we, by the way, are fine with weaponizing the federal government to go after you if you dare show up at school board meetings and complain about what we are indoctrinating your kids with in terms of our leftist ideology. That's what they think of you. And they want to reduce it to funding and they want to reduce it to this issue of making sure you can get your kids to school. Uh, Let's see, for decades, parents have managed to get their kids to school. What are you even talking about? They want control. They want total control of your children's mind from the very beginning until the very end. That's the only way they stay in power. And I'm telling you what, we need to develop a Christian mind among us that is rigorous and critically thinking and involved. And I think this is a really good time to feel encouraged and to keep on going and pressing forward in the truth. We got to leave it there, but thanks so much for being with us as always here on Janet Maffer today. We will see you next time. Mm-hmm.